Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today I'm joined by regular podders Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Torres, Suarez, Coutinho, Salah. Is he next on Liverpool's production line of big money sales as Real Madrid monitor the 37-goal Egyptian star? We take a deep dive into an eventful week for Jose Mourinho and assess his controversial treatment of fullback Luke Shaw. And... As yet another Arsenal star winds down his contract, we ask, why do the club keep making the same mistakes? Okay, gentlemen, Mo Salah is setting the Premier League alight this year. He's got 37 goals and 28 in the league. Ian, are we now looking at a situation whereby Liverpool are going to be fending off offers and in a similar situation to where they found themselves with Phil Coutinho and Luis Suarez? Well, I don't think there's any doubt they'll be fending or uh, certainly fielding offers um, this summer, uh, Johnny. Uh, this kind of season, it's... It's one of those one in every, one every ten years, really. Um, it comes along where players it not just scores that amount of goals, but scores them in different ways. He's not just scoring; he's playing with a, a sort of technical quality, which I think you know is fairly rare or even unmatched across European football. Um, and okay, last weekend's opponents when he scored four against uh, Watford were, are not in your sort of class of uh, Manchester City. Um, Manchester United or Real Madrid, Barcelona, etc., etc. But that's not really the point. If you place Mo Salah on his current form in any of the elite clubs in Europe, then you would say he would score as many goals, uh, play just as well, maybe even better because he'd have a better supporting cast uh, in some clubs with regards to helping him out. So, I Liverpool, I've got this unfortunate knack, haven't they, where they they recruit a player at a relatively low cost. Um, and I wouldn't say Salah was under the radar because he had you know, two very good seasons at Roma. But um, Suarez came from Ajax and Coutinho came from the Inter Milan B team. Um, had outstanding season stroke careers at Liverpool. And then what we found with both those players mentioned is that they promised one more season to Liverpool as long as they got the opportunity to move at the end of that season. In Coutinho's case, that was cut short by six months when we saw him leave for Barcelona in the January window. So with Salah, who's on a relatively low contract, just being paid just over the £100,000 a week, which puts them by nowhere near the elite wages in the Premier League currently being earned. Kevin De Bruyne's new contract at Manchester City takes him to three fifty. The same with uh, Mesut Ozil. Everyone on uh, transfer window knows how I feel about that. And uh, Alexis Sanchez, obviously, who's in excess of 400000 at Manchester United. So uh, if Salah looks at, around and thinks, well, I'm the top man, and yet I'm being paid a third, a quarter less, 
than anyone else. And then other big clubs come in for him. Is he the kind of guy who sticks around with Liverpool? Is it going to be a case of another, give, give us another year and then we'll say whatever? Uh, from my knowledge, there's no um, get-out clause on his contract at Liverpool. Um, it wasn't something that was even negotiated when he when he moved there because in the end, Liverpool were forced to pay more than they wanted for Salah to Roma. Um, I think it ended up at £38 million and the possibility of going up to 42 with add-ons. But they're now looking at a £209 player in the current market as he plays the way he does right now. Of course, there's no guarantee that next season he'll be in the same kind of form. But what we can see right now is he's all the attributes, all the talent, his age, everything you know, which contributes to what he's doing now suggests that this won't be a, a one-season flash in the pan, that this will continue to build um, and that, yeah, he'll be a guy in demand. And we've talked about two or three times in the transfer window that we know that Real Madrid are going to mount a massive campaign of recruitment this summer. Um, and Duncan, I think that Salah's style of play, um, his pace, I think he's fit right into Real Madrid's way of playing right now. Well, with Real Madrid, what's interesting there is there have been noises coming out from people close to Mo Salah, um, I think including the Egyptian national team manager, that Real Madrid were interested in the player for several months now. And they were kind of overlooked initially because it was quite early on in his his, uh, first season at Liverpool. And although he was playing well, the idea that he would be a principal target for Madrid seemed a bit of a stretch. But um, you'd have to look at them now and say, maybe, maybe there is some substance there. And for sure, that's a position that Madrid are looking to strengthen. Um, We've discussed on the podcast several times that Eden Hazard um, is waiting to see if Madrid will make their um, interest in him concrete, i.e. they have been in touch directly with the player. They have told him they want to recruit him as a successor to Cristiano Ronaldo, but Hazard, like um, his club and international teammate Thibaut Courtois, sort of holding those... those, um, those messages from Real Madrid in a slightly circumspect manner because he wants to find out if they will go down the line and make the deals happen. Um, so anyway, you, you've got Madrid looking in that position, looking to recruit, look to strengthen. Um, Salah is obviously a fit at the moment. Um, I think he, he would not just fit what they're looking for in terms of a goal scorer, he fits the way they play, i.e. that they're, um, they tend to score their goals on the counter-attack. Um, and that's Salah's strength. Something that was evidenced, has been evidenced this season is that you know probably the hardest game he's had was Manchester United away when um, Manchester United set up in a way to, to stop Liverpool counter-attacking and Salah went to the 96th minute before he got his first shot at goal, not on goal, it was a long way over it. And that, that's kind of been the outlier in his season, that game, because for almost every other Premier League game, he's been the, uh, the most dangerous player on the field for Liverpool. Where are Liverpool in terms of retaining him? I think they've got an advantage here over the Philippe Coutinho situation because Salah's career has so rapidly, um, his status has so rapidly increased in the game in this season. He, he's been at the club. 
he's performed beyond the manager's expectations, significantly beyond the manager's expectations. And, and Klopp's, Jurgen Klopp's been remarkably honest about that in talking about Salah. Um, he's definitely performed before the club's expectations, but I think more importantly, he's performed above his expectations. And when you've got a player who, who moves to a club, um, starts working for a new manager, and takes their game to a different level in that new environment, I think that has a big psychological effect on the player because he is going to credit his new surroundings and the new manager partially for the increased achievements in his game and will therefore be more careful about examining a change and to go elsewhere. So that, to me, would say that Liverpool's strategy here is to give the player a new contract while he's at his most confident, his happiest um, in this environment, um, you know, riding the crest of a wave, get him in, say, we realise your contract's undervalued at the moment. We want to give you a new five-year deal. Um, this, is the, this is the offer on the table. And I hope you get to a sum where he says, yeah, great, I'll sign that. Um, and uh, then you would have the question of whether you put a release clause in or not. What's um, interesting... Well, Duncan, I, I said this in January, I think, um, on, on the podcast, that if I were Liverpool, I'd be already in negotiations with Salah um, to, to sign that new contract. And I agree with you. I think um, Salah seems to me that he's really enjoying his football. Um, he seems to me, and from what I know of him through people who know him, not that I've ever um, I've spent any time with him myself, but people close to him say that he's, he's quite a humble, down-to-earth guy. Uh, yeah. he's very he's very religious you know he he does thank god a lot for it, for the fortune that smelled upon him so <clears throat> he's not the kind of player i don't think to agitate as well his way out of a contract i think if liverpool came to him with a, a an increased deal uh, even if it did include a, a get out clause um, i think he'd happily sign it and spend another season anyway i think the problem that liverpool have is that uh you know suitors like real madrid who have, you know, constantly on a daily basis have been linked with taking Neymar from PSG. And the deal would cost in excess of £200 million that PSG paid to get Neymar out of his Barcelona contract. You'd have to say you look at Salah and think, well, he doesn't come with a baggage. I'm not saying he's a better player than Neymar because he's not achieved what Neymar has achieved in the game so far, but you'd say he's a pretty good bet to be able to up his game on another level at a more elite club. And and therefore you justify the sort of maybe 180, 200 million pounds you'd have to pay Liverpool to get him out, and then you'd be paying him less money anyway because he's not on that level yet um, to to uh, play week in week out at Real Madrid. So um, I think it's a bit of a, a no brainer for Liverpool right now. Go straight to him with a contract, or so straight to his agents, who um, Duncan tells us are called Spocks, reminiscent of the great um, Star Trek. Um, star uh, Leonard Nimoy, God rest him, and of course uh, their motto is "Play longer and prosper." <laughs> just yeah, just that that, that Neymar comparison is very important because if, if you if Real Madrid are serious and they are serious about trying to get Neymar out of Paris Saint Germain, you are looking at let's say a two hundred and fifty million euro transfer fee minimum. Obby, you might be able to lay some of that off if you can get Cristiano Ronaldo involved in the deal. And five-year contract, 300 million euros minimum. So yeah. you're well, well over half a billion euros in one player there. 
Um, and uh, Mo Salah at present, if you could get him out of Liverpool, would be a lot cheaper than that and allow you to, to you know, you could probably get De Gea and Mo Salah um, out of the same budget. Guys, you touched on Jurgen Klopp's almost surprise at how well Salah's adjusted to life in the Premier League. Is it fair to say that he was more of a transfer committee signing, the much maligned transfer committee, um, rather than something Klopp was driving personally? Yes, and and Klopp has talked about that. He said that he um, had to be persuaded to sign the player um, because he had doubts about his physique in the Premier League. Um, And and that's why I was saying I, I credit to Jurgen Klopp for being honest about that because I know a lot of managers who would, um, if they got uh, lucky, uh, in inverted commas, and, and I'd, I'd partially oppose the transfer, the player would come in and then be their star player for the season, they wouldn't be telling the media that they, they, they'd had reservations about the transfer in the first place. Um, yeah, it's the transfer committee thing is very interesting because the transfer committee has made a huge number of errors at Liverpool. Um, they have signed a lot of bad players in the first uh, few years of, of being set up and, and having this kind of dominance over managers there. But um, Salah is very important to them because Fenway Sports Group, and um, I think Graham Hunter mentioned this in the podcast the last time he was on, or, the, or, the, or his previous appearance, he said Fenway Sports Group essentially sending herograms to the transfer committee saying, if you can come up with players like this, like Coutinho, who you sign for, um, you know, ten million or twenty or thirty million, and their value appreciates to the level of continues, you know, which is up to one hundred and sixty million. Then we are delighted with your work, uh, which tells you something, obviously, about Fenway Sports Group's um, interest here, which is about making money from the club. And when they, when the transfer committee come up with signings of that nature, it makes the the dependence on FSG to put money in for uh, buys uh, much, much smaller. And, and Liverpool's net spend has been relatively low because of guys like Luis Suarez um, and Philippe Coutinho. And also, uh, Johnny, just to follow up on your, on your point originally, I did hear that Klopp was getting increasingly nervous with every time that um, Liverpool increased their bid to Roma for Salah because he was concerned that his transfer budget overall was being chipped away at by a player he didn't recommend. Rated, but had concerns about as Duncan explained. Um, but but Liverpool were tenacious in the way they went about it. Um, so whoever drove that, you know, credit to them. Um, I'm not saying that, that I endorse FSG's um, uh, modus operandi with regards to um, let's buy players in for cheap and sell them for four times the price. To me, you know, that is the way of football these days, but it also stinks, stinks of a little bit of human trafficking um, to invest in what is a human being and then hope to make profit from it. Um, and of course, I'm not suggesting that's the case with Liverpool or indeed Chelsea, who have you know made a lot of money and profit from younger players that they've uh, bought and then sold for a lot of profit. But at the same time, um, it's, it's become part and parcel of football. So we have to accept that. Um, It'd be nice to think that we could be idealistic and that you sign a player purely for his potential to improve your football club. Um, but of course, um, as we know, that doesn't always turn out to be the case. Although we should make a point that um, young Andy Robertson um, has been sensational for Liverpool uh, since coming back uh, into the team. And indeed, he looks like a bargain um, buy from Hull as well. Uh, so 
they're, they're getting some things right now. They got a lot wrong. What I would say is that Jurgen Klopp in the summer was more concerned about improving the defence than he was about Mo Salah. But knowing, as he did, that Coutinho wanted to join Barcelona and uh, despite the what now looks like a very flimsy stance that uh, FSG had at the time with refusing to sell him in the summer when they sold him six months later, uh, at least uh, they brought in someone who could fill Coutinho's shoes, if you like, in terms of that wing playing goals. Um, even though Coutinho obviously moved to drop further back uh, when Salah came into the team and Mane uh, established himself as well. So, yeah, Liverpool are getting some things right. Um, but we don't always say they're getting it all right if they were top of the Premier League right now, which they're not. Um, and they've got a very, very difficult Champions League uh, quarterfinal against Manchester City coming up as well. So um, their success this season will be judged on that. Um, and I would hope, I think, uh, for Liverpool's sake and for the Premier League's sake that Salah is given a new contract and we still see him playing in England next season. Just before we move on, Duncan, with regards to the the power, the financial heft of the Premier League, do you think we're going to see more situations like the Harry Kane one where it looks very difficult for a Madrid or a Barcelona to extricate a player of significant quality away from the Premier League because of the the television deal and the, the riches that we're now seeing flood through the entire league? Obviously, if the clubs have um, the financial wherewithal to increase a player's contract um, and and square one part of the problem a player has with remaining a club, then yes, it makes it harder for um, foreign, very rich, very glamorous suitors to take them out. But ultimately... And, we, and we've seen this with Coutinho, we saw, we've seen it with Van Dijk. You know, Southampton took the stance, we're not going to sell him in the summer, we're not going to sell to you because you've tapped our player up. But six months later, they sold the player because the player um, went on strike um, and then didn't perform to the levels expected of him. And, and then the club made a rational decision that the transfer fee and offer was far above his value, so we'll sell him. And Liverpool did the same thing with Philippe Coutinho. They could easily have sold him in the summer and taken essentially the same transfer fee, but they played. But in their in their perspective, they needed to uh, assage the fans that they were not selling a player in the summer. So they, they played the game of, we don't sell now, but we'll let you go in January. Hold on tight, um, behave yourself, uh, play as you're capable of, and you'll get your move. So what I'm trying to say is that ultimately the players decide in these these things. They they can't have a, a club can't have a player on a contract for more than five years. Generally, when um, one of the more glamorous suitors come in, the contracts already come down um, to latter stages. So again, look at Eden Hazard, Thibaut Courtois, both have run down their contracts, waiting to see what happens with Madrid, which makes it much harder for Chelsea to retain them. Um, if the players want to go elsewhere, which is natural. If you're at Liverpool or Chelsea and you want to be at the top of the European game, you know it's unlikely to happen at the clubs you're at. You, you make an assessment that you want to be, um, rather be at Barcelona or Real Madrid. And then you tell Barcelona Real Madrid, yes, I will push for this move. Um, and then you see how the club you're at responds. And they can hold you to the length of the contract but they can't guarantee they'll get performances from you. And at the end of the contract, you'll be able to walk for free. So I think what the financial power of the Premier League 
has more effect on is the, the, the size of the transfer fee that it's taking to get these players out rather than preventing them from, from moving altogether. Okay, well, from Liverpool to their bitter rivals, Manchester United, and a man who's never far from the headlines, but this week has been a particularly interesting one for Mr Mourinho. We had a 12-minute monologue. United are out of Europe. They've got no chance of winning the league. He seems like a, a bit of a surly presence, some would say. He's even got Chris Sutton saying he looks out of touch. Duncan, is it time for Jose to go? Um, well, I, I've written a, a piece um, yeah, last night, came out this morning, um, Arab News website, if anyone wants to read it, discussing, yeah, is it exactly that question? Is it time for Mourinho to go? Um, what was interesting to me in, in much of the discussion about Jose Mourinho um, since he gave that press conference on Friday is how very little of it has addressed what um, he's actually achieving on the field um, and where he's taken Manchester United. And actually what he said in that press conference, what he said in the 12-minute monologue, which wasn't a 12-minute monologue um, because he was interrupted halfway through it, um, and which really shouldn't come as much of a surprise to any journalist who's worked with Jose Mourinho on a regular basis because all of us know that he likes to give long and detailed answers to questions. And if you get him on a subject which he has something he particularly wants to say, he will give you a long and prepared answer. Um, I interviewed him in September. Uh, the first question in the interview was relating to something he'd said in a, in a post-match press conference um, a few weeks earlier, which was about the, the degree of trouble Manchester United had been in when he came to the club, and I asked him how much trouble the club was in. Uh, and I got an 11-minute answer from him, and it was I, I could have written the article just quoting that one um, answer because it was of such detail and interest um, and depth um, that you know you could have just done I think it was 1,200 words was the <laughs> what he what he said to me you could have printed them straight off and 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 left it at that top and tailed it Duncan as we say in the tabloids <laughs> top and tail it son top and tail it yeah you got to do a quick <laughs> little bit of work in haven't you <laughs> <laughs> but I mean you know what were you surprised um, you, you've worked with Jose, um, for many years, um, at lead Chelsea correspondent for the Daily Mail and the, and the Sun. Um, were you surprised? Did anything about what Jose said in that press conference on Friday surprise you? Not at all, no. And, I th and, and the, the bare uh, sort of um, importance of it was that he, he was simply saying what's true. He wasn't. Yeah. He, there was no, you know, everyone's saying, oh, it was like Rafa's fact rant. Uh, of 2009. The only thing about Rafa's fact rant was that there was not a lot of facts in it. Whereas the things that Mourinho said were absolutely undoubtable um, with regards to Manchester United's uh, position both in Europe and in the Premier League as well as uh, comparing to Manchester City's. And I think one of the problems Mourinho carries around with him and it's the problem of being successful and you know knowing you're successful uh, is that it gets people's backs. Um, there's something about uh, the United Kingdom where um, success is something you should be embarrassed about or, or humble about. And it's, it's called tall poppy syndrome. It's something David Beckham suffered from uh, for many years um, in his career, where we love people to actually get to the top, but when they do, we want to cut them down. And with Mourinho, he's a very easy target 
first of all, because he's not English, he's foreign. Uh, secondly, because he comes across as arrogant and bossy and uh, trouble. And, you know, he's been called enemy of football, like all of this stuff, which is hyperbole. How can a man who's achieved 20 major trophies in his career, including uh, equaling um, so far the record of being, you know, one of only, I think, three managers to have won the Champions League with two different clubs, um, have won leagues in four major, like league championships in four major countries in Europe. How is this man an enemy of football? It's ridiculous to say that. Um, but it's easy, easy to say. It's easy copy because if Jose Mourinho's not your manager, you automatically hate him. And this is something which goes way back to when he was appointed in 2004 at Chelsea and he gave that first press conference, etc. And I'm not even going to say the phrase. But I remember Frank Lampard and John Terry and Ashley Cole, not Ashley Cole, sorry, John Terry, Frank Lampard, saying to me, that they were with the England team preparing for U2004 and the Liverpool table, because it was very cliquey, obviously. They'd been watching it in the dining room, that press conference, and uh, a couple of Liverpool players come over, and I won't repeat the phrase because it'll just get bleeped out anyway, and said, oh, he's a mouthy, isn't he? Uh, your new boss. <laughs> and so right from the very start, it, you know, he's been one of those people who's an easy target. Um, my first question when people talk about replacing a manager or sacking a manager is a very, very um, basic foundational question, which in my role as a consultant on football operations, I, I will put this to any chief executive or board who come to me with the question, should we sack our manager? And it's happened on three or four occasions. And I'd say, okay, who are you going to replace him with? That's my first question always. Because if there's no one out there better, then what's the point? of sacking someone who is already in the club, is working within the club and knows the club, and in Mourinho's case, is actually making an improvement on the field, as Duncan has said. So who is out there to replace Jojo Mourinho that's going to do a better job? But there will be people listening to this who will say the main problem is the, the functionality of the football. You had Chris Sutton saying that he's looking tactically outdated. Now, whatever you think of Chris Sutton, and I'm sure you'll have your own opinion, guys, that is a sentiment that you do hear on, and, and, and see on social media quite often. Is there a sense that he's unfortunate to be going up against Guardiola, who is at the avant-garde of a, a style of football that, that, that Josie's brand doesn't particularly aesthetically stand up well to? Yeah, obviously the, the, heart of the toughest comparison and the easiest ammunition um, for Josie, uh, for Jose Mourinho and against Jose Mourinho is what's happening with Pep Guardiola. So he has been hired to uh, win the Premier League for Manchester United for the first time since Alex Ferguson retired. And he's not going to win it this season and he's not going to win it by a country mile because Pep Guardiola's Manchester City are in the midst of a record-breaking Premier League season. So that makes things look... Um, bad for Mourinho because you, you've got this line of you know, 16 points behind. Uh, that's a ridiculous gap to have to the leaders, but that overlooks um, that they're second in, the, in a highly competitive top six and they're on course for their high, highest points total since Ferguson left as manager and easily on course for it. Um, the aesthetic side, yeah, they're... If you like the Pep Guardiola style of football, you'll never see that style of football from Jose Mourinho. That doesn't mean you won't see aesthetically pleasing football. If you like um, the way Real Madrid uh, won 
the, the league against Pep Guardiola's supposedly greatest um, football team of all time uh, when, he, when he came to Madrid to overhaul um, and, and put Guardiola's team aside and, and reinstate Madrid as title holders. If you like that rapid counter-attacking football with lots of technical quality and a great strategic tactical sense um, around the game, then that is very aesthetically pleasing. And remember, they won that title with a record points total, record wins and record goals scored. They weren't an ugly team by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think the problem, um, you, you talk about the sort of social media and the noise around it. I think the problem is there's this idea which is being pushed very heavily in the, in the mainstream media that Guardiola's type of football is the modern way it's the way football is going it's the only way you can win things it's the only way you can be on the top and if you're not prepared to adopt it then you are outdated i just think that's fundamentally wrong i think um guardiola himself has not won the champions league since he left barcelona having that um unique squad of inherited talents from la masia um who had been trained since um, their early years to play a certain type of game set down by Johan Cruyff, who was Pep Guardiola's mentor. And Guardiola knew exactly how that game should be played, and he took it on to a different level with that group of players. If you look at Guardiola's signings at Barcelona, they were appalling. Most of them were failures. Most failed to integrate into the team. It was about that group of players. And then his coaching now and football brain, which is superb on top of that, but he's taken that system and gone to Bayern Munich and with the express um, instruction that he was to win the Champions League with Bayern Munich, he's failed with good resources. He then goes to Manchester City and maybe he will win the Champions League for the first time since 2011 this season, although I wouldn't bet on it. If he does so, he'll have done that with the most expensive squad in the history of football and being allowed to pick out multiple players in um, key positions for his tactical system at record costs to get it working. If you look at the, the other managers, so that's Guardiola's record. If you look at the other managers who are, who are you know, mentioned in the same breath as, as playing the modern style, going towards this more, more attacking, possession-dominant game, um, playing on the front foot, you've got Mauricio Pochettino and Jurgen Klopp. Zero trophies in England. Zero so far. Pochettino has a chance of winning uh, the FA Cup final, the FA Cup this year, and Klopp has an outside chance of winning the Champions League. Again, I wouldn't put great money on the, on the, the latter outcome. If you look at the Champions League in general since Guardiola left, only one team has played anything like his um, system, which is the Barcelona side that Luis Enrique won the Champions League with. So you still had the same, same DNA there, but Enrique actually changed the system to become more direct um, to take advantage of Neymar, Suarez, Messi. And then the only, the only finalist who played something like Guardiola-type football was um, Klopp's Borussia Dortmund. So that's 14 years, 14 competitors and seven finals, and only two of them are playing Guardiola style. And most of them are won by teams playing tactical um, counter-attack football. So Real Madrid have three. You've got Chelsea winning the, the Champions League, being the most pragmatic um, and, and counter-attacking of them all. It's the, the idea that there's only one way to play football 
and the, the, this modern way that Guardiola's brought in, with a, 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 always with an elite squad of players to work with, is the way to go forward. Just seems illogical to me. I don't see the evidence. I think I think the other thing that's important here, um, and it's something which um, David Walsh, the uh, eminent chief sports writer of the Sunday Times, um, for whom Duncan also works eminently, uh, brought up his column last Sunday. He said uh, that Mourinho, uh, his biggest problem, and indeed his cross to bear, is that Manchester City look like the new Manchester United, as in the old Manchester United, the irony. And also, um, unlike some commentators who have completely condemned and, and, and tried to kill Mourinho in print recently, he said it, there's still a possibility that Jose Mourinho can discover him his younger self, but he must do it soon. And that kind of that was quite resonant for me, and it made me think about his career. And if you look, you know, at his career to date, it's it's um, it's divided into two fairly obvious sections, and it is his younger career with Porto, Chelsea, 04, 07, and Inter Milan, and then after three clubs, Real Madrid, Chelsea, the second spell, and Manchester United, and with Porto, Chelsea, the first time, and Inter Milan, he had squads that he not only developed and moulded in his own image. But the, who effectively were the image of Jose Mourinho on the pitch. They were pragmatic. They were fully committed. Those players would run through the preferable brick walls and more for their manager. Um, it wasn't. They weren't populated by superstars, but superstars were made by Mourinho out of those three clubs and those the, the successful peers in which he had them. Real Madrid was obviously um, he came up against some very big egos and some very strong, um, let's just say, uh, opposition to his methods, but still was successful. Chelsea you know, still won another league title. And at Manchester United now, it's almost the same thing. The club seems to me to be disjointed. Um, when they buy players, they don't seem to be buying players to create balance and a team mentality or team ethic. Mm-hmm. It's to fill gaps where they believe that the gaps exist in terms of their current playing style. So, for instance, Alexis Sanchez, well, the great entertainer, but also a Mourinho fit in terms of his personality, i.e. the 100% commitment, the, 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 the street fighter mentality. But Mourinho's not yet been able to integrate him into that, uh, the way that he wants Manchester United to play with Alexis Sanchez and the squad. Hence, he was dropped to the bench against Brighton last Saturday night in the FA Cup. So, go back to the words of, of David Walsh, he needs to rediscover his younger self and quickly. And by that, I think he means he needs to mould Manchester United in his image as quickly as he can, get rid of the deadwood this summer, um, bring in players who are not necessarily superstars, but ones who he can train, improve, develop to play in the Jose Mourinho style and effectively convince everyone in that dressing room, who I don't believe everyone in that dressing room is convinced that he is always right. And if you do what... He asks you to do. You will win football matches. I just say I think I think that's what we see happening. I think that's what's been happening over this past week. So, the after the severe game, um, he said certain things, but didn't go into a lot of detail. He didn't um, didn't criticise the players. He then had the Friday press conference where he said, "Context: This is where Manchester United have been in the Premier League for the last." Five years, it's not very good. This is where Manchester United have been in the Champions League for the last decade. In Europe in general, it's not very good. Um, so this is a process. I'm improving things. It's going to take time. Um, and I'm competing against 
huge investment elsewhere. So look at look at the thing in the round and tell me if the team's improved or not, if Manchester United are improving and see where the project's going. Then after Saturday, still no criticism of players, then after Saturday, with a poor performance from the team, he starts to criticise the players. I think the signal there is he's been given the support from the club. He's finally got um, the go-ahead to clear out the deadwood this summer. And now he's, I mean, he, he was asked specifically about it after the Brighton game when he criticised Luke Shaw. And not just Luke Shaw, said, you know, there were only five or six players on the field who were playing as Manchester United players in that game. Um, praise Scott McTominay for playing badly but having the right attitude to fix things. He was asked if there was not a danger that he uh, could lose some of the dressing room from that criticism. And he said, yeah, there is a danger, but I've got nothing to lose because if the players don't respond, then we know they're not Manchester United players. And that, for me, is putting it down on the line to the players and putting it down publicly. Either you grow up, either you've performed to the level required consistently for Manchester United, or you will leave this club. And I've got the backing um, to get rid of you this time. So... Here's your last your your last chance, essentially. Well, exposing the players to that harsh reality has come under the microscope with one specific player, probably more than any other, which is Luke Shaw. There was a story in the Telegraph yesterday that is stating that the players feel that he has been thrown under a bus by his manager. Ian, what's your take on the Luke Shaw situation? I know you have strong feelings on it. I, I do, Johnny, but I have strong feelings because... Um, my experience over the course of 25 years in football um, and, and indeed other sports that I've covered is that when you play sport at an elite level, and Manchester United is at the very top of the elite level, and I'm talking about sport right across the board, whether it's um, golf, motor racing, if it's Olympic sport, NFL, MLB, anything – if you are one of, at one of the very, very top clubs, one of the very top teams in any sport, then the difference between winning and failing is your mentality, your attitude, your ability to take on board the coaching responsibility, as Mourinho calls it, the weight of the red shirt, and you make yourself succeed. And if you don't, then you don't belong there. Now, Luke Shaw has been given several opportunities by Jose Mourinho in front of the public view, and that by that I mean on the pitch for Manchester United, and God knows he's been training almost every single day when available in front of Jose Mourinho to prove himself, to prove that he is that elite athlete, that he can handle the pressure, he can handle um, the responsibility, and that he is capable of producing performances which uh, justify his... £28 million transfer, the most expensive teenager um, at the time uh, when he was transferred to Manchester United and indeed a fairly hefty £140,000 a week wage packet. He has repeatedly failed to do that. He clearly isn't good enough for Manchester United and indeed I'm not sure he's good enough to be an elite athlete if his attitude and his lack of ability to perform at the highest level is what we've seen. So I, I, I take great um, sort of, you know, uh, umbrage at people suggesting that he's been the 
victim of bullying by Mourinho because he's hooked at half time or he's hooked half having come on as a substitute and then taken off again, etc. etc. Mourinho's job is to win football matches for Manchester United. If Luke Shaw's not good enough and Mourinho tries to give him a chance to show he's good enough, that's not Mourinho's fault. And I do think, you know, Graham Sooners called it properly when he said, Show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. Show me Luke Shaw and I'll show you a loser. And if he's not good enough or he's not brave enough, or he's not mentally tough enough to handle <coughs> being a Manchester United player, then he shouldn't be there. Simple as that. So I would reject all these ridiculous calls that he's being bullied or being made a scapegoat or being thrown under a bus. It's nonsense. He's simply not good enough. Get out Luke Shaw and go find a level for you somewhere else because that's what you need to do for yourself and stop wallowing in any self-pity that you may be or that other people are allowing you to do so. Just get out and then let Manchester buy a proper left-back. Luke Shaw has played two seasons under Jose Mourinho, or the best part of two seasons. He was the starting left-back for Jose Mourinho's first game, official game as manager, and remained the starting left-back for a good part of his first season. <clears throat> he... Um, in total, I think he's had 34 appearances under Jose Mourinho management at Manchester United. So he's had a lot of chances. Um, you don't have to go very far to ask um, individuals from other teams whether uh, Luke Shaw looks overweight um, when they have faced him this season. And they'll tell you he does look overweight, he looks out of condition. You watch him on the field... He's defensively poor, as Mourinho pointed out after the Brighton game. He's positionally poor, doesn't play the offside line well, he um, loses the, uh, the awareness of where players running into his defensive area in the field are. He was always considered to be an attacking fullback. When he was signed by Manchester United, he was a young talent, he was the guy um, who had the physical ability, and this is ironic, he was signed partly because of his physical ability, because he's six six foot, six one, and muscular, um, and and fast, very fast. So that was the appeal in the player, and the idea that he got up and down the wing and got the ball into the box. Um, someone was asking me the other day about and said he, he, he runs into blind alleys, doesn't he? He's not how many uh, assists does he actually have in his career? I don't know. Looked at the statistics. Luke Shaw has five assists in his entire professional career. He's not scored a goal in his entire professional career. Okay, maybe you don't expect fullbacks to score many goals. Obviously, you don't. But as an attacking fullback, if that's the, the characteristic that got Manchester United to make him the most expensive fullback in the world, by transfer fee, which is what he was when he was signed, to have only five assists is a condemnation of what the final ball is. And I think the person who mentioned it to me was, gave a very accurate assessment. He looks good because he gets the ball, he accelerates past opponents, he goes towards the opposition byline, and he runs into trouble or puts a bad ball into the box. So he's ineffective at the end of the field where he's supposed to be contributing chances. And he's ineffective at the end of the field where he's supposed to be stopping chances. And as Ian has, has gone into detail about mentality and about his willingness to, to prepare himself properly, physically, he's not doing that part of the bargain either. What he does have, 
are some very influential agents who are important in the English game and are very good at getting their side of the story out to, to the media. Um, I commented on the podcast earlier this season um, about a story that came out uh, mid-season, um, which was run saying that, that Luke Shaw was the fittest player at Manchester United. That was a story prominently run in one of the uh, major national newspapers in this country. Um, I uh, put that story to, the, to um, high-level people at Manchester United and they just laughed. Because that's not the Luke Shaw they know, and that's not the Luke Shaw we can see on the pitch. Um, the idea that he was bullied, the idea that's coming out in the stories um, uh, today and yesterday, that that Luke Shaw is considering um, going to the club to com- to take to make a complaint um, that his employment rights have, have are being um transgressed and the bullying he's receiving from Josie Mourinho it's incredible it's incredible um as Ian says the answer there for Luke Shaw he's had the opportunities this season he got back into the team in a a period when when uh Ashley Young was injured and unavailable he had the support from the manager the manager was actually pleased with the way he had put effort in and got himself fitter and was trying to fall tactical to instruction and then he stopped so he he was left out of the team again. He's he's had the chances. He's not prepared to take them. The answer is to move elsewhere. Okay, uh, we're going to move on now, guys. From one manager that maybe in Mourinho's case has a has a question mark against his name to one that definitely has a question mark, um, in Arsene Wenger at Arsenal and a situation that keeps on rearing its head and. What you now have to say looks a bit like rank unprofessionalism from the club in that it's yet another player whose contract has been allowed to run down, and that player is Aaron Ramsey. Ian, is this a situation that we're going to have another player leaving Arsenal for far less than their value or on freedom of contract? It's very possible um, that that's going to happen. Uh, and, and I don't understand um, Arsenal's position from the football department point of view, nor from their business uh, perspective, that they would allow a senior professional player who has contributed an awful lot to them. I mean, we're not talking about um, Jack Wilshire here, who's you know spent most of his career injured. Ramsey has had some injury problems, but generally speaking, he has been one of the better contributors to the Arsenal cause um, and is a loyal and hardworking professional. Um, and, you know, a lot of criticism of other Arsenal players who shall remain nameless has been the opposite of that. Now, Ramsey's contract expires uh, a year in the summer. Um, there have been no negotiations which have been um, positive uh, or conclusive. Uh, that's now the point where, just like uh, Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez coming up to the January window, uh, a lot of the um, reasons for questioning uh, should I stay or should I go? In the, in the you know words of the great Joe Strummer, um, is well, what if I do stay? What am I going to get? You know, I'm going to get Arsene Wenger for another year or, or even longer. I'm going to get a new manager. I'm going to get better players around me. So they're making a rod for their own back here. First, by a not negotiating much earlier in a player's contract to get him on a contract, which will keep him and even if he does leave, supply uh, a better transfer fee. Um, but they're now getting the point where a player can run down his contract like Sanchez did into the last six months, um, and then you don't get anywhere near the fee you should get for a player of that calibre. 
In Ramsey's case, obviously, it would be less money than you would get for Alexis Sanchez, but the point is still the same. Um, you've got a, a player who you could have tied down to a new contract a year, 18 months ago, uh, would have been happy to take an upgrade in his contract then. Now thinks and looks at the club and thinks, well, are they actually going in the same direction I want my career to go in? And you know, as Duncan talked about with other elite players like Azard and Courtois at Chelsea, it's a it's a very um it's a very influential way for them to secure a move elsewhere because the club will see that they'll get less money if they allow him to run his contract down, indeed no money whatsoever if he leaves on a free, and therefore it makes their exit more um uh, let's just well, it's, it's more it's easier than it would be if he was on an extended contract of five years. So, in in this case, Arsenal have mishandled this um, again, uh, and they're not going to be able to solve it until they resolve what's going to happen in the future of Arsenal Wenger and the future of the club, for that matter. And uh, we will see, I think, a lot of interest in Aaron Ramsey in the next few weeks and months uh, over the summer window because a year out of contract, he'd be available. You look at a player who, under contract, is probably going to be worth, well, let's say Guilford Sigurdsson was, was transferred for £50 million. Pounds. Aaron Ramsey's worth at least that and more. So, But with the left his contract, he's probably worth near 25 So you do have to beg, it does beg the question, what's going on at Arsenal? Who are the people who are, who are looking at these situations and um, actioning negotiations or renegotiations on contracts? They're clearly not doing their job properly because this is happening again and again. It's it's quite incredible if they haven't offered a, a contract to Aaron Ramsey um, at this stage because he's at the peak of his career, 27 years old, which is, I think, statistically the period in which, which on average, players perform at their best, outfield players. Um, and you can look at that Arsenal squad and you can make a good argument for saying he's the best player that they've got in it at the moment, certainly in the top three. Um, so that... They should not be in this situation, full stop. But it's one thing to have offered the player a contract and the, and the player doesn't want to sign it and is agitating for a move, but to have not offered the deal um, in their circumstances when you know the player will be of interest to um, at least three of your rivals, perhaps all of your top rivals would be interested in Aaron Ramsey. I mean, you could you could argue the case that he would fit very well into Manchester City's system. And as we've discussed before, they still need cover in those areas in midfield. Um, it's, it's just insane. Um, but uh, very representative of where Arsenal have been kind of from top to bottom for the last few years. Is this Arsene Wenger who's... The, the one that you have to level the blame toward? Um, well, Johnny, you take some um, of the blame because obviously Wenger's uh, influence at Arsenal is still uh, so um, great and, and and has been for obviously his tenure there, especially the last 15 years, that he, if he said to the club, uh, we should be talking to Ramsey uh, about a new deal, then they would definitely action it. But Wenger's so caught up in his own problems, etc., etc. I think he's blind to these things now. So that's what I said when I, I when I was pointing out someone else in the football department who deals with player contracts, and certainly the club as a whole. And it's not like it's a big, you know, it's not a big secret. They've got all the players' contracts on file. All they've got to do is every transfer window have a look at their squad, look at you know the the, the players' stats, look at his performances, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and say, right, we should be looking at an upgrade on this player's contract, we should be looking at getting negotiations going, etc, etc. And of course it comes out in the media as well, because we all know and the agents tip uh, people in the media off that their, you know, that player's contract is coming to an end, etc, etc, because they want to create some interest. So 
it's, it's no, it's not rocket science. It's just, it's, it, if, if anything, it's just good business sense, not just you know good football sense as well. So yeah, Wenger has to take some of the blame, but I would say that Arsenal as a club, you know, I, I go back as far as um, Robin van Persie, who was their top scorer over four of his six years of, uh, in his contract, I think, and then had a year left in his contract when he left for Manchester United, and then effectively won Manchester United the title on his own. And you think to yourself, well, you know, this is not this isn't a new problem for Arsenal. This has been a historical one, and you would think they'd have learned a lesson, especially as, as I said before, when Alexis Sanchez could have been sold for a lot more money when he was two years out of contract, or indeed signed up on a new contract uh, at that time, and therefore not sold for um, the money plus Mkhitaryan. Well, no money plus Mkhitaryan, as it turned out, to Manchester United in January. So uh, it just for for someone like Stan Kroenke, the owner who is more about making money than he is about winning trophies, you would think, you would think that this would be a priority to stop this, this situation recurring. Well, the chaos continues. Bad news for Arsenal. Great news for Arsenal fan TV. Anyway, we're going to move on and we're going to go to the quickfire round and we're going to focus on the Champions League quarterfinal draw. We're going to get the guy's opinion on each of the ties and then I'm going to ask who they think will be the overall winner and lift the trophy. So, going to start off with Duncan. Uh, Juventus against Real Madrid. In my view, the tie of the round. What do you think? I agree. I agree. I agree with you entirely. I was just going to say that. I, I watched some people discussing the Champions League draw last week and they were arguing that Liverpool-Man City was the tie of the round, which seemed a bit bizarre since Liverpool are rarely in the competition and Man City have never won it. And you've got... Um, last season's a replay of last season's final and, and, and the other quarter final. Um, it's a fascinating tie. Um, I like Juventus. I like the way Allegri leads his teams. Um, I would like to see the, see them get um, some of the players that are involved in the squad. It would be nice to see them win a Champions League. But I think um, this is the season for Real Madrid. Um, there's a lot of pride on the line there. You've got Cristiano Ronaldo, um, when you're talking about pride, he's got the most pride on the line and he's wanting once again in his career to prove to people he is the top man after he's been written off earlier in the season. And I think that that those characteristics mean that Real Madrid will go through from this time. Ian, Sevilla against Bayern Munich. Uh, no doubt for me on this one, Johnny, I think Bayern Munich will um, go through over those two ties. I think Bayern Munich have been a little bit bizarrely underrated in this season's competition. Um, I think, uh, you know, the fact that they brought your Pankis in for, for, to cover for a year, if you like, uh, cover for the end of the season, um, made a lot of people think that this was a, a lot of, this was a short-termist season, if you like, for Bayern Munich, and uh, they wouldn't be as motivated. But um, I think against Seville, they'll be organisationally far too strong. Uh, and they've also got enough firepower, as we saw in the um, round of 16 against Besiktas, to blow away teams. So for me, Bayern Munich head to the semi-finals. Duncan, Liverpool against Manchester City. Well, it, it is a fascinating tie to see the, the two of them play against each other again. Um, on the strengths of the games this season, it should be easily Manchester City's. Um, you know, people seem to have forgotten that City beat Liverpool 5-0 early on in the season. On the, on the quality of the teams over the course of the season, again, should be easily Manchester City's. But 
I would say there, there are factors here in that Manchester City have a terrible record at Anfield. Um, I think they've only won once there in decades. Um, and they didn't want that draw. <laughs> Manchester City didn't want to be against Liverpool in this, this round of the competition. Um, you've also got to ask questions about the physical, mental condition of the Manchester City players. I've discussed this several times that the Guardiola's teams tend to tail off at this kind of the season because he asks so much of them, he makes them run so hard and he's mentally so demanding on them. So that gives Liverpool an opportunity there. Um, there's some interesting stuff going around this game. I've seen Liverpool supporters um, encouraging a welcoming of the Manchester City bus where they want their fans to bring um, bangers and pyrotechnics and throw them at or under the Manchester City bus ahead of the game. A Liverpool shot. Our <laughs> Liverpool support, our Liverpool support, is strong enough to throw Luke Shaw under a bus. That's a lot of weight to have. <laughs> I, I, I find this idea that you you encourage your fellow supporters to throw fireworks at an opposition bus absolutely disgraceful. Not only is it illegal, it's uh, extremely dangerous, and I hope that we will see um, someone within English football hierarchy and indeed the Merseyside police um, putting it out that this is unacceptable and it will not be happening before the game. In terms of the outcome, I think I'll go just with Man City because they are the better team um, and they've got the Premier League wrapped up. So if Guardiola chooses to do this, he can play a weakened team against Manchester United. Um, in the, the match that go, that takes place between the two legs. So he, he does that have that option to focus on this game and that should be enough to get them through it. The second leg being in Manchester, probably an advantage as well if you were going into to Anfield with all the emotion that would be surrounding that occasion in the second leg, it might give Liverpool a little bit of a, a headwind. Yeah, and, and you would say that you'd expect them to get away goals at Liverpool, although they might not come out of that game with um, even a draw. Um, because of the record at the ground and because Liverpool did have a superb performance against them earlier in the season in the league, you would expect them to get away goals um, from that game, which is always an advantage uh, going into the second leg unless you're you know, two or three behind. And Ian, <laughs> probably a slightly easier one, Barcelona against Roma. Yeah, I, 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 go, I concur with um, current, you know, current form and, and uh, Barcelona's... Uh, Superior playing squad. Uh, I'm not saying Roma are surprise quarterfinalists in this case. Um, they've had a very good season. They've had actually two good seasons in, in Serie A. Um, but um, Barcelona have the experience uh, and they have uh, game changers, which will be the key against Roma, who will be very well organised and who will, um, I think, play on the break uh, and play more direct to Jekyll. Whereas Barcelona have a, a high tempo. Um, group of players who can play through opponents, and um, the fact that they're still involved in a title race per se in La Liga uh, may um, put a little bit extra pressure. But you could also say it gives them more of momentum because they're playing week in week out with pressure, which you know, as Duncan's alluded to before, uh, is, is hampered um, by Munich under Pep Guardiola, where they won the league very early and then lost their momentum and lost their fitness. So I think Barcelona are not going to be that team, and therefore it will be Barcelona in the semi-final. 
Okay, that gives us a quarter, uh, a semi-final of uh, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Man City and Barcelona. So, Duncan, who do you think of those four will go on to lift the trophy? For me, it's between Barcelona and Real Madrid. I think they are the, the two outstanding candidates. I, I, one of the reasons is it's so hard to win the Champions League for the first time. There's, you know, it's going. The Champions League is the hardest competition in football to win, and the experience of having won it before, and and being the dimension of club that has won it before, is important in these things. One of the reasons why Manchester City wanted to sign Dani Alves in the summer was to add that that experience. Um, uh, of winning top tro- trophies into their dressing room, I would, if I have to choose between the two, I think I would lean towards Real Madrid because for me they have the best player in the world in Cristiano Ronaldo, and they have a player in Cristiano Ronaldo who who has pushed his career to the level where he, he performs when it counts the most. So that that incentive of stopping Barcelona from having a a clean sweep of the season and that incentive for Ronaldo to prove himself the best once again could just swing it in their their way. Ian, um, I'm going to go a little bit left, not left field as such, but um, more towards uh, the uh, east of Europe, and I'm going to go for Bayern Munich ahead of the two Spanish contenders. Who I, I agree with um, Duncan would probably be first and second favourites, but something about Bayern Munich this season um, is a little bit different. I think it's uh, sort of returning. Uh, you know, uh, Mister, as they say in Spain, um, and probably Professor in Germany. Uh, he's got those. He's got a lot of those um, more senior players firing again, which wasn't happening before. You've got players there like Muller, Lewandowski, who, uh, and, and in fact, players older than them. Who, this might be their, you know, their final hurrah uh, in terms of Champions League. Um, they're 17 points clear in Bundesliga, I believe. Uh, so they've got that wrapped up. Um, they can focus on Champions League semi-final, focus on the Champions League final. And I think Bayern might be the team to watch and maybe even the team to back um, for, for the 2018 um, title. I'm going to throw a spanner on the works uh, because I'm angling for an appearance on the Anfield rap like you two <laughs> as well. Uh, I think Liverpool's high-pressing game is going to cause teams major problems. If they can get past Man City, I think they will win it. But it's a big can I, if. Can I just add to your um, Anfield rap appeal there, Tony, that, <laughs> that Liverpool's defence will also cause Liverpool problems <laughs> when it comes to playing against high-pressing teams with decent players as well. That's a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> now, you heard it here first. Get your cash on Liverpool. Or don't. Okay, guys, I'm going to slam this particular transfer window shut. Thanks for joining me. To continue the debate, you can on Twitter. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. Duncan is at Duncan Castles. And Ian is at Garbo SG. If you want the podcast as soon as it becomes available, please subscribe via Audio Boom or iTunes and also review and rate us on there too. That helps us get the podcast to as many people as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday at our usual time. Thanks for listening.